0: You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast.
1: No matter what you're writing about, whether it's slavery or war or family, someone smarter and more talented has already done it better than you can ever do it. And you're not Toni Morrison, you're not Ever Jones, you're not Homer writing about war, but you have to trust in your own uniqueness. And if you find the right
0: combination of words, maybe someone will come along for the ride. Welcome back to World of Words at the Wheeler Centre. In this episode, Santilla Chinepe speaks with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author Colson Whitehead about the bygone eras that inspired his new Harlem trilogy.
2: Good evening, Melbourne. How are we? Yeah, that was one person down here that was pretty excited. How are we doing? Are we excited to be here for this event with Colson Whitehead? Much, much better. Um, my name is Santilla Chingaipe and I am a filmmaker and historian and many, many moons ago I was a student at RMIT so I would like to give a shout out to, I know that there are a couple of students who are upstairs uh, doing the tech stuff tonight um, and yeah, so really always pleased to be back here. Um, I would firstly like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. I honour and acknowledge the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonurrung peoples, the ancestral caretakers of this land. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who continue to occupy unceded lands that are today collectively known as Australia. So RMIT Culture is proud to be working with the Wheeler Centre to present tonight's conversation supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. RMIT Culture unites the university's creative programs and cultural collections, as well as the university's public cultural spaces, including the incredible Capitol Theatre that we're in today, and offers a curated program dedicated to building a community of, of culture and ideas. Um, and just to let you know that we will there will be a book signing t- at the end of tonight's event. Um, I think tonight's bookseller is paperback, and you'll be able to get your book signed by Colson upstairs in the salon. And without further ado, and the reason why I think you're all here tonight, um, it'd be awkward if people didn't know why they were here tonight. <laughs> um, but you know we're joined by you know the incredible Colson Whitehead. And Colson is a multi-award winning and best-selling author whose works include The Nickel Boys, The Underground Railroad, The Noble Hustle, Zone One, Sag Harbor, The Intuitionist, John Henry Days, Apex Hides the Hurt, and a collection of essays, The Colossus of New York. He's one of only four novelists to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction twice and is a recipient of MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships. For the Underground Railroad, White had won the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Fiction, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence, and was long-listed for the Booker Prize. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for a second time for the Nickel Boys, which also won the George Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and the Kirkus Prize. The Underground Railroad has been adapted as an Amazon Prime TV series produced and directed by the Academy Award-winning director Barry Jenkins and was broadcast in 2021. He lives with his family in New York City and is here on stage with us live in Melbourne. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: um. How was that on a scale of like one to 10 in terms of being weird of having to hear me talk about you while you're here and
1: like? Oh, I I often uh, dissociate. (laughs) So it's um, a little talent. Uh, Thanks so much for for coming out tonight and Santilla for talking with me. I usually spend uh, Wednesday nights at home in my apartment weeping over my regrets. (laughs) It was a nice change of pace for me anyway.
2: that's good. I mean, hopefully there won't be any regrets by the end of the night. Um, So you're here to talk about this trilogy that you've been writing, and it starts with Harlem Shuffle. And I thought perhaps we could begin there. Um, Why Harlem Shuffle?
1: Well, I mean, really, um, it was the summer of 2014, which was like a big year for me. It was the year that I um, committed to writing The Underground Railroad. Um, which ended up being very important for me. Uh, it's the year that I came across the story of the Dozier School, <clears throat> the Dozier School, which uh, inspired the Nickel Boys. And it was also the year that I was with my wife in our in our car, and I was thinking, thinking about what movie to rent that night. And I was like, "Ocean's Eleven again. How many times can I rent this fucking movie? Um, but I thought they must have had had so much fun writing it, you know. Um a heist story is so so much fun. And so I wondered if I could write a heist novel. So before there was Ray Carney, before there was Harlem, it was just like me wanting to do a, a crime novel.
2: Yeah, right. So this was at the time that you were writing the Nickel Boys, is that?
1: No, I, I had um I was about to start writing Underground Railroad. So it
2: was Yeah, right. Wow. Okay. So so okay, so We'll just fast forward. We'll, we'll we'll return to the Underground World and Nickel Boys um, later. But just fast forwarding to Harlem Shuffle. So then you've got this idea to write this heist novel set in Harlem. How does when does Ray Carney show up? When does his character reveal himself to you in the writing process?
1: So yeah, so I have a genre, a, a heist uh, novel. And for me, it's mostly the heist story is mostly a film genre um i had to find a place um i was sick of writing about the south after underground and nickel boys Mm -hmm. and i wanted to come back to new york frankly so it's gonna be new york um and if you're gonna have black gangsters it's either harlem or brooklyn and so i decided on harlem um so i had a place what year um i didn't want to go too far into the past because i was feeling lazy after Underground Railroad and didn't want to go, you know, do too much historical heavy lifting. Um and uh I was trying to think of a, a New York event that my heisters could exploit. So the blackout of 77, is that a good time to rip off a bank when the city's blacked out? I thought about the uh the riot in the early forties, which was Uh, when a a black woman was abused by a white white cop. It was a week of rioting, but Ralph Ellison used that for Invisible Man, so he kind of owned it. Um, And then I remembered the 1964 uh, anti-police riot, and I thought that would be a good moment. Um,
2: Right. So if you could describe Harlem Shuffle very briefly, how would you describe it?
1: Uh, What do I call it? I guess I just call it a a heist novel and then a a character portrait. Um, Over time, it's become also a portrait of New York City. Um, It started off as one heist, but I kept coming up with different capers for Ray Carney, so it became a triptych, uh, three different novellas that come together Voltron-style to make uh, Harlem Shuffle. And then I kept coming up with more and more, so I thought maybe two books, six capers total— but if you do two books, you might as well do three. So, um, <laughs> so it became a trilogy.
2: I mean, what, what I, what, what I, I mean, I love this book. And when I was reading it, I thought that you had it. It felt like you were having a lot of fun as you were writing it. Did it feel like that when you were writing it?
1: Well, you know, I have books that have you know more jokes in them, and books that are more serious. Uh, underground didn't really have room for. Uh, A lot of my weird sense of humor (laughs) because of the subject matter. Mm. Uh, The Nickel Boys does have some jokes. Um, You know, gallows humor is very important to the boys as a survival tactic. Uh, But when I started writing Harlem Shuffle, I was able to um, sort of employ my sense of humor again. It was very nice, you know, having fun with character names or gangsters. I'm, I'm writing 100 years into the sort of crime genre. We've had Dashiell Hammett, we've had Chester Himes, Patricia Highsmith, um, James Elroy, Walter Mosley. And so the stories of these kind of criminals have gone through so many different changes that 100 years later I can have a lot more fun with with the structure, with the form, with the stock characters. And so immediately it was a lighter book and um, I definitely didn't feel the need to rush to the liquor cabinet. (laughs) Uh, Right after work, as I often did with Underground and Nickel Boys.
2: Um, So Ray Carney is obviously the protagonist of Harlem Shuffle, um, but there's a band of characters that you introduced to us in a a way that's very enriching and very rich in itself. And I wanted to read a bit of a description of one of the characters that I actually... um, Love in the book, and it's Pepper. Um, And you describe him. This is how this is how Carney describes him. He 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 says he was burly and long limbed, stooping to hide his true size. Something off about him made you look twice. But his dark gaze made you turn before you could figure it out. He shouldn't be there, but was a mountain man who'd taken a wrong turn and stayed in the city, or a blown-in weed that found purchase in a sidewalk crack, a foreign body that had adapted to its new home, which I thought was such a, like, just such an articulate way of describing Pepper's character because the the minute I read that, I was like, I can see him. And that's something that you do so well in this book is that the level of um, characterization is just so masterful because I was reading that and it just jumps off the page, but clearly it's you know it, it it is it hard to, to write that is probably the question i want to ask you it like did that how did that description of pepper come to you
1: well i mean there was you know um you know definitely some paragraphs stay with you and remember how you were laboured over them and it took you like 6 months uh you you have one draft and then you figure out something else like 3 months later and change it a bit and then finally 6 months later you finally get the sort of right combination so that's like one paragraph pepper is a very important character um you know he guides ray carney into the underworld and then when i was planning the second book which takes place in the 1970s and has three stories i figured pepper needs his own story so he gets his own kind of caper in the in crook manifesto oh, right. the okay. second book uh so his own 100 page
2: fantastic shenanigans and and so this 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 novel is set in uh harlem at a particular time in history and one of the things that i was was quite fascinating was just the level of detail in this world and i'm curious just how much research went into it like i mean even just like the furniture detail was i I was like googling all the modular you know Couches that Ray Carney was selling, just to sort of go. What does this actually look like? And it turned out it was exactly the same as you described it in the well, book. Well, there's, there's
1: different um, uh, ways of writing about New York. Uh, my first book, The Intuitionist, is about elevator inspectors and takes place in an allegorical New York. Um, so it's very sort of a it's very distanced and and warish city, no specific street names. Um, Zone One is like my zombie apocalypse book. Uh, takes place in New York, and that's sort of like a utopian city, because everyone's dead, and there's no, no longer a line for taxis or in the supermarket, and you can <laughs> do whatever you want. And this one, I knew I wanted to be realistic, and so that means um, I drew upon gangster memoirs, uh, memoirs of hustlers. William Burroughs, famous beatnik writer, his first book is called Junkie, and it's about being a hustler, an addict in New York in the 50s, and there's this great slang that I'm sort of stealing uh, to use for my own thing. Um, newspapers. It takes, the book takes place in 1959, 1961, 64. So what's going on in the city at that time that I can exploit for my characters? Um, 1961 is the re-election of Robert Wagner for mayor, and so if I go to the New York Times archive online... I'll see an article about that, and on the other side, an ad for Siemens Furniture, and I'm stealing language from those ads. Wow. Um, If you put in Harlem 1960s into YouTube, somebody's uploaded their grandfather's um, footage that he took with his Super 8 camera. They digitized it, and it's up there, just this weird artifact. And you see, are people wearing hats or not wearing hats? In the late 50s, people are still wearing hats, but they stopped by 64. Um, in the distance, you can see like pig knuckle sandwiches, five cents, and I'm like wow. pig knuckle sandwiches. What's <laughs> going in there? And so you're, you know, you're getting all this information, some of which you can use, some of which it sh- is just for me. Yeah. And then you figure out how to deploy it in a in a um, constructive way that serves the book.
2: And how much of your own relationship to New York? um Informed Harlem Shuffle because you were born and raised in the city. Um, was there any personal family history that that helped shape some of that research and thinking about this world?
1: Well, you know, I didn't realize when I started, when I picked '64 as the first year, that it was basically my parents' Harlem. They were a young couple uh, starting to raise kids in the early '60s in Harlem, um, and i do all this research. You know, I found the Hotel Teresa, and then there's a, a chock full of nuts, this coffee chain on the first floor. So I wrote that scene, I told my mom, like, oh, have you heard of this place, the Hotel Teresa, the chock full of nuts? She's like, oh, yeah, I ate there every day you know, after, <laughs> before work. Um, I worked around a corner for a foundation. Um, I wrote more scenes. There's a department store called Blumsteins. Uh, I wrote the scenes. I told my mom, like, this is crazy furniture store, and she's like, "Oh yeah, your dad worked there one summer, so um, <laughs> I should have gone to my parents." Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it didn't occur to me. And so, um, so it's not. So my family history is in that my family is in there, but um, indirectly, you know, I overlap with Ray Carney um, a little bit. Uh, we definitely are both obsessed with real estate, and I'm sure in Melbourne there's still kind of there's still that same kind of. Where's my apartment? where's my my neighborhood going mm-hmm. thing going on? Um, I'm often in my younger days, I was often going to a new apartment that I thought would fix me if I'm in the right block with uh, in the right neighborhood, I might somehow become like not a subhuman. Then I move in <laughs> and I'm like, there's no closets like how do I know there's no closets? <laughs> and what's that rumbling? Is it the fucking subway again? How can I move up on, on over the subway again? so um Ray Carney is very aspirational and thinks that if he gets his job right, uh, if he gets the right uh, apartment with two bedrooms for the kids, um, he'll fix himself and doesn't work out that way.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that is quite interesting about the book as well is that it sort of grapples with morality in a way that is quite interesting because, you know, Sorry. Um, Ray Carney and the sort of world that he's involved in um, are sort of like... I don't know, blue-collar criminals, if you can describe them as that. And you've got this other world of elites who also commit crime. And there's this interesting kind of um, tension that, that sort of shows up in the book about, you know, is there a right or wrong way of committing crime, if you can even phrase it like that, which I thought was quite well done in the book.
1: Well, I think there's, there's different kinds of crimes, a different scale. You know, in the first section, we're with... Uh, street criminals, you know, robbing uh, this hotel. In the second section, we pull back and meet the sort of more corrupt power players of Harlem, the black businessmen uh, who are engaged in diff- different kinds of crimes. And then we pull back even more in the third section and meet the, the real power players in the city, the Wall Street real estate tycoons. Um, when we sort of, when we see what those guys are up to, how bad are some of the street level mm-hmm. crimes? Um, it's all a matter of perspective, and it depends where you're where you're standing, and and what level where you are on the on the ladder.
2: I'm sort of also interested in the, in what you do really well in the book, which is introduce these bits of Black history through the course of Ray Carney's um, story. Um, I'm thinking here around, and this is a very funny scene, I remember reading it and I was just howling when, um, I can't remember who it was, but they were describing um, Juneteenth and then someone sort of said, well, that's a pretty odd holiday to be celebrating the day that the fact that you found out that emancipation happened years before. Um, And you've also got another scene where um, you talk about Seneca Village and how that paved the way for what is now Central Park in New York. And I wonder, first, if you could describe that, but also why it was important for you to punctuate the story with some of those sort of little bits about New York that might not be familiar to most people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not important, but I think it's part of uh, part of the world. Um, definitely, um, you know, I, I love the city, and as I get older and uncover... Different, um, different facets of it, different parts of the history. Um, I want to share it if it can serve the characters. And it definitely, um, in a story where Ray Carney is, is, is laid low, then he rises, he's laid low again, uh, there's a, a big echo of that in, in New York City history, you know, whether it's the pandemic, um, which had people saying, like, New York is over, everyone's fleeing the city, uh, 9-11, um, Great Fires, Yellow Plague, wars with uh, the British soldiers, wars with Native Americans. Um, New York is always in peril and it always comes back. And so finding incidents like uh, the history of Seneca Village served a larger story of regeneration, renewal, uh, destruction, uh in ways that illuminate the character and sort of the larger theme. So, Seneca Village was in the middle of Manhattan. It was a, a town, a little neighborhood of free black people, poor Irish people. Um, they had churches, they had schools. They decided to put Central Park in the middle of Manhattan and they have to go. And so, it's an early example of eminent domain in, in New York City, where they they raised the village, and now it's a very beautiful park. But there's this hidden history of a of a black town in the middle of um of the of the city. Um, Ray Carney's wife comes from a well-to-do family; uh, they're descendants of Seneca Village, and so, I in addition to the Destruction, renewal idea. I also get the 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 idea of class. Mm. Elizabeth, his wife, is from a different socioeconomic uh, station, and so that history of Seneca Village, this sort of black aristocracy, plays out in different ways in the second section when when Carney is more sort of aggressively trying to rise up on the socioeconomic ladder. So you know, you want to find a different. Bits of history Mm. that serve the stories, serve the characters, move the plot along, and sometimes you find something that can do all three.
2: So does that happen? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking here about how you described when you got the idea for Harlem Shuffle and then when you actually wrote it. Like, do you sort of get these little bits and then sort of have them scribble down somewhere and then as you're writing you sort of go, oh, I remember that, and then is that how it works? Or are you sort of, as you're researching, kind of like pulling from that as well?
1: I have, you know, I mean, um, I have my fun facts I put in my phone. <laughs> I used to have a little notebook, like a real writer, and then I forgot it on the plane. And uh, I got to the hotel. I was like, I'm going to recreate everything in my notebook. I have such a super memory. So I wrote everything down, and the next day went back to the airport and found the notebook, and what I'd written down was only like 10% of what was in there. So now I just, everything's on the cloud on my phone. Um, but I've always, if I... Now come up with come up with a line in the middle of the night, I put it, you know, write it down. Um, someone told me the story of Seneca Village like 15 years ago, and I thought, oh, I want to use that one day. Yeah. Um, I did find one note, you know, my origin story for the book is 2014, but then I found a note in my phone from 2012 that just says FENCE. I'm like, was am t- I talking about a criminal fence or like a fence that <laughs> separates people? I have no idea. Like, is that the secret genesis of the book? Yeah. Uh, just that one word. So anyway, I have all these, <laughs> these, <laughs> these <laughs> shreds like a madman. And then um, once I start, once I commit to an idea, you know, the file gets bigger and bigger. And yeah. I'm, you know, is his name Pepper question um, mark? Uh-huh. Is he sell furniture, electronics? question mark and i solve you know solve these different problems where is this what is the story where is the store is he married is he single does he have kids all those different factors end up shaping his story
2: yeah speaking of fence i hadn't thought about this until i read your book i hadn't thought about how a shop could be a front for criminal activity basically um and when how did that Fact, like, How did that come up when you were sort of imagining this world that Carney was in and the heists and everything else? Why was it central that he um, presented as, in some ways, an upstanding um, character?
1: Well, I mean, like, like I said, like, start with the heist, and then what year, what town, who's the main character? Um, I always hate it in heist movies when our criminal heroes pull off the job, half are dead, they're being chased by the police, they're bleeding, Uh, they have two million in diamonds, and they go to the fence, and he says, I'll give you 10 cents on a dollar. I was like, what? They did all that work, and you're just going to rip him off? Um, I hate that guy, so I was like, maybe he's a good character for for a protagonist. Um, There are a few sociological studies of fences, Um, a book called The Professional Fence, Um, (laughs) stuff like that. And um, it turns out a lot of them will have a a legit business, and, like selling furniture or electronics, and then the back is where they'll you know trade their illegal stuff. And so immediately that you know suggests that dual self: right. the front you pay, you give to the world, and then your secret life. And I think all of us have that um, in different ways in our in our lives. You know, we're one person to our family, yeah. one person at work, one person after midnight, and in the dorve section uh the sort of midnight time of criminal activity you know there's an, an, another uh phase for carney so um uh you know I- i'm always like just trying to solve what the next problem is like who where uh once i had the fence the psychology is sort of in there in the um in the profession itself
2: yeah After I read it, I kept walking up and down in Melbourne in the city and I kept imagining what kind of shops would be fronts for criminal activity. And I kept thinking that it might be the souvenir shops because... And I have a theory here because during the pandemic, um, I don't know if you know this, but our borders were closed for about two years or something. Um, But the souvenir shops were open. (laughs) I sort of thought, which tourists are going into the souvenir shops? Um, but that was something that uh, Harlem Trupple made me think about. Um, before we move along to your other work, I, I want to touch on a character that endeared me so much, um, and that's Freddie, because Freddie was frustrating me, Colson. Like, I, I, he was, he was, he, yeah, he, he. If I was, I, I kept thinking, if I was Ray Carney. What would I do if I had a cousin like Freddie? And I and I think I would disown him <laughs> straight away. Um, so how how quickly in the writing process did Freddie um, d- did Freddie make his presence known to you?
1: Well, I mean, I think um, like both in Nickel Boys and Harlem Shuffle, the main character has like their opposite number, and so um, I think in both cases um, they came pretty early once I started you know, populating the book with a a cast. Somebody, if Ray Carney has a sense of himself as a very controlled person, his opposite number is someone who's uncontrolled. Um, And they're very close, and the stuff they get up to when they're younger is okay, stealing comic books or, you know, throwing firecrackers, but then um, it's not so funny at 30 years later. Mm. And I think both, both those two novels have a relationship between people who start off the same and then one survives and one doesn't you know why does one person survive the nickel academy and the other person not um why does ray carney figure out how to be in the world and uh and afraid is not so um it's a heist novel that's like the, you ask me how to describe it i say heist novel it's a character portrait and then also you know, a story of two brothers, basically, uh, who love each other um, and then go off in their different different directions.
2: Yep. Um, so I guess this is probably a, a wonderful time to um, segue into n- the Nickel Boys. Um, and you mentioned that you were working in Harlem Shuffle when you then decided to turn your focus onto the Nickel Boys. Um, what was it that led you to prioritize
1: that over over Harlem Shuffle? It was more, I mean, I wrote Underground Railroad and I thought um, I'll do my thing where I write a serious book and then a lighter book. And then um, Trump got elected and it seemed that the Nickel Boys might be more useful for me to deal with my dilemma of being an American. Are we going in the right direction? Are we backsliding? Um, Are we headed in the right way of a country? Or are we doomed to have this sort of... um, conservative progressive movement so um, I don't usually do like two serious books back to back but Nickel Boys seemed more um, compelling to me in the spring of 2017 when my schedule was open if I have two ideas and that they're sort of and I'm not sure which one to do I'll have two notebooks and whichever one feels faster. It's generally the one <laughs> I should be working on. It comes, uh, you know, it becomes pretty uh, obvious really quickly. Right. Which one? Which one um, I'm sort of more preoccupied by?
2: Yeah. You write at the end of Nickel Boys that it is based on a true story um, of a re-
1: uh, reform school in
2: Florida um, and what transpired there, and how, and then you sort of link to the bits in within that story that you connect back into Nickel Boys. But I want to know about Elwood, and his character. I mean, you obviously would have had all this research, and you would have had you've been reading and thinking about it. But when did his character make himself known to you? When 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 you were thinking about turning this into a book?
1: Well, I knew um, you know I came across the story of the real life model, and most of the survivors in their sixties and seventies were white, but most of the kids were were black. So I was thinking about what story I could get out of a black you know, part of campus. Um, I knew I wanted somebody who doesn't deserve to be there. No one deserves to be there, uh, but I wanted someone who is sort of swept up by being up in, in the wrong place at the wrong time, the way that so many young black people are, are swept up uh, by law enforcement. If Elwood had left five minutes earlier or five minutes later, his whole life would be different, but he's in the wrong skin at the wrong place at the wrong time and finds his way into the Nickel Academy. So um, it started with someone who shouldn't be there, and of course that character ends up being a POV character for most of us who have not been incarcerated. Um, uh, I knew that he'd be part, I could have set the story in 1910 or 2011 when the school actually closed down, or 1925. But I picked 64 because it's the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and we're about to get this great legislation, uh, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, but it's also the height of segregation. Um, so it's a moment where uh, both these two forces are at their, at their height. Um, and I knew that I wanted somebody who believes in the, that the world's going to change, then is forced to confront those beliefs when he faces this, you know, the real face of the evil he's up against.
2: Mm-hmm. And you constructed it so well because as you're, I mean, Elwood and what he experiences and what he endures is just absolutely devastating as as the book continues because, I mean, I certainly could relate to, 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 to feeling like an Elwood, to feeling like, you know, if you just do the right thing, things will work out. And having that not be the case, um, Was that deliberate? I mean, you talked about the moment that you were in in your life and and, and what you were grappling with. And was that part of that tussle that you were having internally as well of um, will good prevail, I guess?
1: Well, I had two ideas uh, that I kept at the top of my little computer file. And one is that the the guilty go unpunished and that the innocent suffer. And that's... um, those are the two sort of guiding rules of the Nickel Boys and also our world, our world a lot of the time.
2: Yeah. So the Nickel Boys, as you said, um, rooted in historical fact. Um, so it was the Underground Railroad and parts of Harlem Shuffle. I'm curious to sort of know, what is it about history that fascinates you? What? what, what it's a place that you seem to return to a fair bit with your work.
1: Well, I used to... Um Uh, my early books are very contemporary you know very uh um much about contemporary life and i got to a point where i thought i said enough like i thought i should just shut the hell up because i have nothing new to say uh there's probably like a really angry 28 year old who has a real a much better take on what's wrong with how we live now instead of me sort of sad middle-aged guy who <laughs> <the> <laughs> worries about his kids and his mortgage. Um, and so rather than just keep saying the same things about how we live now, uh, going into the past became a way of finding material, and I got a lot of creative uh, inspiration out of it. Um, I couldn't rely on – we talked about humor. I couldn't rely on my sort of satirical distance in Underground Railroad um, and that was good for me for that book for that you know time period. Um, I couldn't rely on my sort of stock critiques of late capitalism and information age. I had to sort of get out of my comfort zone a bit. And so um, uh, it's just been a, re- a really fertile time for me. I found you know inspiration um, in different parts of the past. You end up talking about how we live now um, anyway. You you always do because. Some things change and some things don't, but um, uh, I think periodically I have to make these sort of changes in my and how I work, and um, or else you become you know sort of stagnant and start repeating yourself.
2: Yeah, I I, I wonder. I mean, you know, you're like you mentioned. You, there's there's a lot of humor in your writing and there's the history there as well, um, but you've also written because I've. Had the um, good fortune of having to read your catalogue in preparation for tonight's event, and it's been a joy because there's just so much diversity in the richness of your work. Um, but you've you've written a few nonfiction books, which I thought were quite interesting. I mean, Colossus of New York is the one that I read. I haven't read the the poker one. Um, and I wonder, is nonfiction a space that you are keen to explore in the future, or are you sort of kind of quite happy in the fiction space, where you are?
1: No, I mean, I always wanted to be a novelist. From when I, you know, uh, from when I, was, when I was a teenager. I think when I was younger than a teenager, I wanted to write comic books. But um, I always wanted to write novels. Um, but I love. But you know, the 80s were a great time for the 70s and 80s were a great time to uh, be exposed to the new journalism. My sister would buy. Joan Didion and Tom Wolfe, um, and I would, uh, read those books when I was, like, in junior high, and, uh, Love the Village Voice, Alternative Weekly Newspaper, which had, um, these really sort of great, nimble voices writing about, writers writing about, um, pop culture, they write about film one week, and then comic books, and then music, and, uh, and music, um, and I thought that uh, that'd be a cool job, so I started off as a journalist, as a critic, uh, but I always wanted to get back to, to fiction writing. So the two nonfiction books I've written sort of um, just sort of happened to me. You know, "The Colossus of New York" is a series of expressionistic pieces about New York City, and after 9 11, I had to figure out how to be in my city after it'd been attacked, so I committed to that book. And it's weird nonfiction. And then my poker book uh, about going to the World Series of Poker, I was in between things. I got a a call from a magazine asking if I wanted to write about the World Series of Poker. And I was like, no, I don't want to go to Vegas. It's, like, hot and stuff like that. (laughs) And they said, well, what if instead of paying you, we paid your entrance fee of ten grand, and then you wrote about that? And I was like, sure. Um, But I never played tournament poker before, so I had to, like, learn and... I got a poker coach teaching me how to play. Um, I was training. I would go drop my daughter off at school, you know, say hi to the other parents, We're like, you know, what do you have today, Colson? I'm like, I'm going to Atlantic City to gamble. I'll be back <laughs> about 4 a.m. Uh, taking that late night bus. Um, and then I had to, I had to play in the World Series of Poker and it was just a beautiful experience. Uh, the article came out in four installments so I wrote the first one. I would get feedback, like on Twitter, um, and I felt really collaborative in a way that, and less isolated than you know writing a novel. So um, uh, I think maybe every ten years it's good to write a nonfiction book. I'm probably you, I guess, <laughs> okay. uh, but really I'm, I'm, a, I'm a novelist. Yeah.
2: Um. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, interviewing Bernadine Evaristo. So she won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago on this very stage. And she was talking a lot about how people sort of see her as an overnight success, because obviously she's won this prize and it's brought much more attention to her work. Um, and it happened late in life for her. and But she had obviously been writing for a very, very long time. And I was thinking about this in, in, in your context as well, because as I was going through your body of work, um, there's just so much there that you've written and you have gained enormous recognition for your most recent work um, and well-deserved, absolutely. Um, but I wonder, what was it in those years that you were writing um, that kept you returning to the page? Like, what, what, what was it that, you know, you'd write a book and then it'd be out in the world and then you'd return and you'd write another one. I'm just curious about that.
1: Oh, if I could do something else, I would. I mean, I hate the job. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I wanted to write from an early age, write comic books and then horror novels like Stephen King. And then... uh, But I think I became a writer once I wrote my first novel, and it got 25 rejections. And I was like, I had no choice but to write the next one, if I could... Um, My parents want to become a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer. Um, I don't want to become a vet. I hate animals. (laughs) It didn't seem like there were many options. So um, no one else is going to write the book for me, so I have to write it. And maybe people will get me three books in or four books in. Um, But I'll be a better writer for having written the second book. Yeah. And I'll be a better writer for writing the third book. And so, you know, I'm I'm sort of stuck with it. Um, and it's it stuck with me, I guess. So,
2: But it takes a certain level of self-belief to just keep persisting.
1: Delusion. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, why should someone read your book? You know, why do you have something worthy to say? And you have to believe that you do have something worthy to say. With Underground Railroad, you know, um, there are great novels about slavery, uh, beloved by Toni Morrison, The Known World, Edward Jones... And so before I started, I was like, oh, I'm gonna reread these books and uh, uh, see what I can get from them. And I got 30 pages into Beloved and I was like, I'm totally screwed. You know, you can't (laughs) really beat Toni Morrison. Why should I even try? (laughs) But I think what I found very calming was the idea that no matter what you're writing about, whether it's slavery or war or family, Someone smarter and more talented has already done it mm. better than you can ever do it. So you just have to trust that you have something to add, your own sort of distinctive story. And you're not Toni Morrison, you're not Ever Jones, you're not Homer writing about war. Um, but you have to trust in your own uniqueness. And if you find the right combination of words, uh, maybe someone will come along for the ride.
2: Mm. Um. Speaking of the Underground Railroad, many years ago when you were in Melbourne, I don't know if you will remember this, but um, you gave a talk. It was quite similar to this. And I was sitting in the audience and you were asked a question. I think it was around the time that Trump was elected. And you were asked a question about the state of affairs in America um, as a black American. And I remember you sort of deflect... Well, not quite deflecting, but you sort of just kept steering it back to your work and the book and you did this quite a few times and at when I was watching in the audience it blew my mind because up until that point as someone that you know makes work that does center the black experience in the Australian context um, I hadn't considered that that was an option that there was the option to actually not comment beyond your work you know and I'm just sort of interested in sort of finding out how you enforce those boundaries, you know, because obviously your work is um, making comment about the things that you're curious about and the things that you want to say. But how do you ensure that, you know, you're not being pulled into conversations that you might not even be an expert to sort of comment on? Or I
1: don't care about. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there aren't, I don't know how many black American writers come to Melbourne. Uh, definitely in Europe, you know, um, there aren't a lot of black American writers who travel um, to Poland, you know, to Germany, to Denmark. And so you are sort of pushed into this, you know, you're talking to some journalists who've never actually talked to a black person before. And and so they, they're they talking about the book, but also they want to just um, use it use as a sounding board for their own... Uh, ignorance about black culture and their curiosity. Um, so, it, you know, it sort of depends on the day and the mood, like how, how hard you shut it down. Um, sometimes you're like, you're like a little child. I'm not sure what to say. Um, let's be patient. Um, and then sometimes you just say, I'm, I'm here to talk about the book. I didn't fly 3,000 miles to answer your question about if Obama, why is Obama considered black if he has a white mom, you know? Mm-hmm. read a book I said read a book one time and the journalist started crying I felt really bad like, I was like, so <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you do you just try to hopefully somebody will pick up Harlem Shuffle because you know, there's, there's a, I did talk about it for a few questions before we got derailed
2: I mean speaking of Obama some of my favorite work of yours and it, I'm not asking you about Obama at all um, but some of my favourite work of yours was when you wrote opinion pieces for the New York Times and they were very satirical and one of my absolute favourites um, is when you self-declare as the Secretary of Post-Racial Affairs and this was your way of sort of um, making comment around the fact that Obama was elected and people were sort of going, we've now entered a new era of like post-racialism in America and, you know, we're post-race. And I thought it was really quite clever. And I wondered if, if if you were to give public comment on some of these sorts of issues, if that's a space that you kind of feel more comfortable occupying, where you can be a bit more satirical, where you can actually poke fun at some of the things that are being said. Well, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm doing I'm talking about it on my own terms and I'm having fun, and it's for me. You know, it's not um, for, for anybody else. Hopefully people, you know, find it funny as well, but it's really just for me. Um, yeah, I mean, the idea... Of, post-raciality was really dumb and one thing trump did do was stop people from saying i think we're post-racial <laughs> and also white people fist bumping me has gone down 95 oh, really? percent you know <laughs> in the last six years or so i guess something good yeah you know, came out of it
2: um and I've got one, one, one question I want to ask you. And I, and I should let the audience know that I'm going to open it up for um, questions um, after this question. So if you do have a question for Colson, please put your hand up, and there'll be an usher that will come to you with with a mic. Um, but this is around, and again, this is something that I admire in how you've been able to navigate this. But you know, how you manage expectations, because obviously, you know, with your most recent work you've drawn so much attention and recognition from everyone, from Obama, Oprah, to even Carrie Bradshaw, um, in the HBO remake thing, (laughs) reboot thing. Um, I think she's holding a copy of The Nickel Boys, which I thought, whoa, this is is interesting. But um, uh, that says a lot more about me than it does about the character, (laughs) and I feel like I've revealed a lot right now. But uh, taking it back to that level of recognition um how do you how do you quiet that noise when you're writing how do you sort of put all of that aside you know the fact that time magazine named you america's storyteller you've got all these prizes to your name and you know even when i was introducing you you know i introduced with all these incredible accolades but how do you quieten that when when you are just with the page and you and you're writing and you're you're working through a story
1: well, because I guess the the work is hard and hard, and it's vital to me, and I have no choice but to keep going. And it's always hard. It doesn't get easier because people are reading me more. Um, it doesn't get harder. It's just always the same sort of level of difficulty. I mean, I think um, I guess people often ask, like, do you have you know expectations are high? How do you feel about? people other people's expectations and those are really other people's expectations you know i have my own quality of standards my own work that i'm trying to live up to i want to fix that crappy sentence this ending does not work i got to figure it out and um all the other stuff um is really separate from the from me and, and me wrestling with the the work and the ideas and trying to get it right um so There's not enough time to worry about what other people are thinking. It's nice when people enjoy the book, um, but it's really about me. I'm writing for myself uh, to figure out the world, to figure out my place in it. And again, if I find the right words, people come along, but it really is just for me.
2: Yeah. Um, Can we turn the house lights on so that we can see if people have their hands up for questions? Hello? Yeah, we've, okay,
0: great. Have you got it? Great. My question was: um, What are you reading at the moment, and what are your thoughts on it? And also, do you have an emerging writer that you'd highly recommend, and why?
1: Um, yeah, I'm mostly reading nonfiction these days. Um, uh, I'm not sure why. Um, so, David Haju, uh American writer, writes a lot about pop culture. Has a great book called Positively Fourth Street. It's about the early folk scene in New York. Joan Baez and Bob Dylan as their finer footing. I don't even like those people. Um, <laughs> but he's a very compelling portrait artist about New York and different cultural periods. Um, he's, so I had a David Hajdu doubleheader. I read that book. And then Lush Life, which is a biography of um, Billy Strayhorn. Who was a jazz guy who wrote a lot of Duke Ellington's big songs like "Take the A Train"? Never got credit, and I think I'm i liking them because they're both about New York. Um, they both took place in New York, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and um, that's where I'm sort of living, you know, creatively. Um, so mostly nonfiction. Uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, uh, his book "Empire of Pain" about the opioid epidemic is always a highlight, and I always like to recommend it. Young writers, I'm championing. Um, I'm blanking, unfortunately, but I'm sure there are many people.
2: <laughs> um,
1: young people talented. so:
2: hand down there. Do you listen to music when you're writing?
1: Um, I do. Yes, loud music. Um, uh, I'm from New York, and so I always did like music. Uh, I, I did work to music, my homework, you know, college papers, and now I have like a 3,000 song playlist. Of just songs I like, and it's David Bowie and Edith Piaf and John Coltrane and Daft Punk, and it just sort of shuffles around and keeps me company.
0: Thanks, Colson. Um, there are some Black American writers here. I'm sitting next to one, um, Sandy. You asked my question, but I've got a second one. Um, my question is, Colson, how do you
2: care for yourself um, as a as a writer, particularly when you know you? Are writing about you know race and just cr- deal with dealing with
0: critique and whatnot.
1: Dealing with critique. Um, well, I think yeah, I think people usually ask about the self care question about writing about slavery and and Jim Crow. Um, I'm very compartmentalized. I think with Underground, I did all my heavy lifting before I started writing. Um, uh, it's one one thing to say. I'm going to write a story where the Underground Railroad's a real train. Then another thing to actually do the research and come to it as a grown-up, as opposed to like a kid watching Roots and realizing uh, that existential moment uh, where you realize that it's a miracle I'm here, that my ancestors were not killed when they were kidnapped from Africa or didn't die in the Middle Passage and didn't, die on the various plantations and somehow, had a kid who had a kid who had a kid who eventually um, uh, allowed me to enter the earth. So um, I did all my sort of intellectual emotional heavy lifting before I started writing um, and I was able to be compartmentalized. With the Nickel Boys it was much harder I think because it was two hard books back to back. I had set these two boys on this tragic route and um uh it did sort of it did seep in. I, I I wanted to go to the Dozier School and see the campus. Um each time I got a plane ticket, I would blow it off. I get a hotel room, blow off the hotel room. I would get this real sort of heavy, anxious feeling. And I realized that I just felt bad about going there. I, I felt really strong that it was a place of evil. Um and then when I was finishing the book, uh, you know, there's always, like, more research you can do. But I was so depleted, at the end of the day, I would just, um, you know, cook dinner and, and drink wine and, uh, and not, you know, do more research. So um, I felt very depleted towards the end of Nickel Boys, and I think it was doing, not having that sort of fun book in between. And then I handed the book in, and I cooked barbecue, and played video games for two months. (laughs) And that's how I came back into the world. So that was self-care. Good evening, Colson. I just wanted to ask you, um, in your experience as an artist,
2: uh, especially as you were saying before, in terms of how you find that bits of you find its way into your work and how it sort of shapes how you write your work. What I wanted to ask, especially with um, some recent debates, is whether or not you think the artist can really be separated from the art, in that, as you were saying before, how bits of yourself finds itself in that art. Can it really be separated from it? Or,
1: Well, I mean, I, f- you know, I think um, I'm in some books and I'm totally absent from other books. Um, so I talked about overlapping with Ray Carney. and um, I have very little overlap with Cora, the main character of Underground Railroad, which is probably why it's my most popular book. Um, (laughs) I I could help but notice. Um, The Colossus of of New York, my New York book of essays, is probably my most personal and autobiographical, but no one would would think that. But there's so many bits of me that I recognize in these sort of floating uh, perspectives and, and, and anonymous consciousness uh, that I recognize as my own. So that's very close to me, but no one would really know. I have an autobiographical novel, Sag Harbor, which does take off from the very facts of my life growing up in the 80s. But um, my 1985 was really boring and uh, I have to change things to make the character compelling. I would put my my friends in the book, my friend Jeff. Uh, But each time Jeff appeared, he would do something un-Jeff-like because it was not a memoir, it was a a novel, and he has to do certain things. And um, uh, sometimes the things that Jeff would do in real life didn't serve the story. And so, weirdly, my made-up Jeff is more real to me than the real Jeff, who's sort of like a jerk. Um, So... uh, yeah, so sometimes I'm in there, sometimes I'm not. It really is um, getting into character. And sometimes you can I can draw upon myself, I can draw upon people I know or things I've observed, and then some things I'm, I'm totally making it up.
2: Great. We have time for one more question. I think there's a hand up on this side. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Colson, for being here. Um, I'm... From Bronx, New York, and have read your books, and one of the things that stands out very strongly for me, other than New York City, is your connection to the South, or that you bring back from your first book to Nickel Boys, the South. And my question to you is, where does the impetus, or where does the kind of relational connection to the South connect for you? In these books, is it through a family history or a kind of strong sense of, you know, kind of connecting the black experience to the South before New York, or just any, yeah, anything?
1: Yeah, wrong. I mean, um, really, before Underground Railroad, I had no connection to the South, um, uh, but the South is where most of the slavery was, and so um, I had to had to get in the character. Um, uh, if you decide to have a female main character, your female main character should be convincing and realistic. If you decide to write a novel in the South, um, it should be uh, convincing and realistic. So personally, um, I've gained a lot of affection for uh, for the South. Uh, since Underground came out, I had no idea how it would be received down there, but definitely uh, the coast, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, has really embraced it and brought me down. I've been to a lot of colleges, been to a lot of libraries there, um, Georgia, Florida. Florida, because of the Dozier School. Um, I've not been to Alabama, Mississippi. Um, so the Deep South definitely is not um, having a reckoning with, with, the, with the past. Uh, but I've been delighted with people who are really reckoning with their own great-great-great-grandparents, who own slaves, you know uh, towns where they have they're taking down statues and and trying to um, uh, figure out what happened and why and, and how they can do things differently so um, so the South is there uh, because that 's where slavery was people in the same way people are like, "Oh, you must really love Harlem to write this book, and actually i don't really. <laughs> That's another neighborhood. I like. I like all neighborhoods in New York, really, except for Staten Island. Um, so uh, um, Harlem is where the black people were. So that's where the book takes place. And uh, I love. I love Harlem. I love Turtle Bay. I love the East Village. Um, all these different places. They're all part of um, that great organism called New York City, which is which I love. So thanks a lot. Wonderful.
2: And on that note, that concludes tonight's conversation with Colson Whitehead. Can you please join me in thanking Colson?
1: Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Santilla Chingape in conversation with Colson Whitehead. It was recorded Wednesday the 24th of May 2023 as part of World of Words series at the Capitol, presented in partnership with RMIT Culture. The event was supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, the Victoria Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.